Katie Herzog. How's it going? Jesse, do you mind if I get a little vulnerable with you on the show today? It's about time. I've been trying to get you to open up, so I'm glad you've finally figured out a way to do that. Go for it. All right, Jesse. Well, I'm a little nervous because I have a big thing, a big event coming up tomorrow. Let me guess. Dog bar mitzvah? Close, close. Now, I am going to be doing something that terrifies me and I think should terrify every human being. I'm going to be driving over a bridge tomorrow by myself. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You laugh. You laugh. I do laugh. I have my own neuroses, but explain. Explain for the people. All right. Well, we have to back up a second. So I was planning this weekend on going to the coast with my wife, Jana, and the dog, Moose, taking the van down there. As longtime listeners will know, I am a professional uh, van life influencer. We've been getting out in the van a lot this year. So we're going to go to the coast this weekend. And then a couple days ago, something horrible happened. We got offered free tickets to go see Joni Mitchell and Brandy Carlisle at the Gorge, which is this like outdoor amphitheater in eastern Washington. I've never been to the to the venue, but apparently it's Oh, I thought the Gorge was gonna be a lesbian bar. Well, I mean, it will be this weekend. Yeah. So of course I was like, you know, why the fuck would I want to do that? Why would I want to why the fuck would I want to go see a living legend and Joni Mitchell? This sounds horrible. So you know, like, I just, I like, this is sort of an aside, but I just don't like live music. We've talked about it before. Like, if it was going to be Joni Mitchell doing stand-up or Brandy Carlisle, like, reading from a book of short stories, I would have been interested. But this is music, so I'm totally uninterested in this. So, but I, of course, like, my wife, you know, happy wife, happy life, blah, blah, blah. So I told her, you should go, take a friend with you. But I'm taking the van, and I'm going to take Moose down to the coast by myself. So, um, so we're going to do it. We're going to do a solo. And to get to the coast, we have to drive over a bridge. And as you may or may not know, I guess now you do, I am terrified of driving over bridges. So I'm going to like I'm going to do some I've been practicing some cognitive behavioral therapy, like some TikToks that I saw. I'm going to take my beta blockers and I guess I'll just I'll wear an adult diaper just in case. So wish me luck, Jesse. This is this is a big deal for me. I I do wish you luck. Now, is this a... Do you believe the bridge is going to collapse or is it more visceral and hard to explain than that? No, it's not neither, really. So I have driving anxiety. I have like, it's something that has affected me for a long time, but it manifests in a couple of different ways. Freeways, in the rain, driving at night, driving during the day, uh, around infrastructure, and primarily, oh, going over 50 miles an hour and primarily on bridges. So I have a history of having panic attacks. I've only ever had panic attacks in in the, the safest place possible, which is when you're driving, um, <laughs> and specifically over bridges. And this has been – it's gotten worse. It, like this first started when I was a, a, like a, in my early 20s. But it's and this actually affects a lot of the women in my family, so I think there's a genetic component to it. But yeah, so bridges are my number one fear, my number one fear. So, but I'm going to do it. I'm like I'm sucking it up. I'm doing a bridge tomorrow. So I, I have to admit, I have a little bit of the same no. thing. It's weird that we're similar. Like I've had a thing occasionally pop up. So we're both neurotic, deeply <laughs> mentally ill. Yeah. Which is just a, it's a synonym for podcast. Uh-huh. Nobody who podcasts is well. No. And I've sometimes had this thing where if I'm – I like walking across bridges, especially when there's a view, and I'll get this like weird panicky thing that isn't quite – it's almost like a panic attack. And I've, yeah. I've only had like full-blown panic attacks from weed in like my early 20s. But so when I was living in Boston, I, I the only volunteer work I ever did was at a suicide hotline called Samaritans. Wait, wait, wait. You out. helped at a suicide – how many people did you drive to suicide? 
Was that, was it, was it a, that is not, was it not cool. Encouraging people to commit suicide. Like a few, few things. I've always wanted to write about this. Few things. One is you don't, until you volunteer for one of these places, a, very few of the people are like imminently suicidal. They're just lonely, lonely. and it's very sad, but it's yeah. not the work. You're not like heroically saving lives far from it. Um, it was actually really interesting for a lot of reasons. That's maybe a conversation for another day. But the worst thing Far, I'm not sure anything has sapped my faith in humanity more than the fact that, guess who regularly calls suicide hotlines? Trans people? Masturbators. <laughs> oh, no. That's so much work. Literally, there'd be these five. I didn't That's get so it. Much I, I have oh, such my a, God. I have such a stereotypically masculine voice, obviously. They would uh-huh. hang up. when when, I, But then they would call back. They would wait for a female voice. And so these fucking... <sighs> God. Like, I mean, they they ranged in age, but some of them were like, I forget what I was at the time, 26, 27, like young females working sometimes early morning shifts, manning a suicide, womaning, I should say, a suicide hotline. Dude's fucking calling to jerk off that into the suicide so hotline. That is Doesn't so Doesn't that make you just up. think we should all kill ourselves and it, just give up on this whole human project? It makes me think we should defund suicide hotlines immediately. <sighs> Um, but anyway, so so walking across um, the the bridge Mass Amazon, uh, which is a nice little view of the city, I would it's like a low bridge. I would get this weird panicky response, and then years later, the same thing happened. I love walking into or out of New York City on the Manhattan Bridge. It's it's actually better to walk on than the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. And yeah, this weird panicky thing. What is wrong with us? How like wait a second? Did our wait, parents I'm, I'm, just can, pair up with like the wrong genes? I'm confused about what that has to do with the suicide hotline. Oh, because I would walk at the end <laughs> after the shift, I would be very stressed out. So I would do like the three-ish mile walk home to Cambridge and I would go that route. Okay. I think that you should volunteer for the suicide hotline again. And then when that happens, when somebody calls up, a masturbator calls up, you just need to start masturbating too. <laughs> oh, now you like that? <laughs> probably, probably would. That was like, dude, that was so demoralizing. Oh, yeah. Like I just... Uh, anyway, we are really fucked up about bridges. I overcame mine. I just like, I'm usually more of a coward than this. Mm-hmm. This is all very embarrassing to admit publicly, but I just kept doing the walk in Manhattan. Yeah. I was like, fuck that. I like this. I'm going to do it. Exposure is the best. Uh, yes, you were absolutely right about that. The problem with my particular fear is that like if you're walking across the bridge and you have a panic attack, the worst thing that's going to happen is the panic attack. If, I, if I'm yes. driving across a bridge or on I-5 or anywhere and I have oh, a panic gosh. attack, the worst thing that happens is that I kill myself, a bunch of people, and even worse, my dog. Uh, so, yeah, ex- exposure no, therapy. No, the worst thing would be me having a solo host, this, True. which would be a lot of work. Um, yeah, so exposure therapy is the way over this thing. The problem is that it's, like, dangerous. So, yeah, this is a sort of lifelong issue. If anybody has any ideas on how to get over my fear of driving without exposure therapy, uh, hit me up. Also, I should be clear, like, exposure therapy is, like, doing it under this uh, supervision of an actual therapist. You can't just, like, go do it or you should. I, th- I think that works, though. Like, I used to have, re- like, I- I've had driving anxiety for a long time. And about, let's say, 10 years ago, I was living in a place. I was living in Durham and I was working in Raleigh and I had to take the freeway to get there to my job. And so I was forced to drive on the freeway every day and I got over it and I was like fine with driving on freeways for years. And then I stopped. I moved to a new place. I wasn't driving anymore. I wasn't driving on freeways and it came roaring back. And now I like I can barely like be a passenger on a freeway now. Anyway, uh, yeah. That sucks. Well, this is like the, the shit. If Unless you like handle it, it just doesn't go away. One no. time I um, me and my mom with my dad. This is many years ago. Uh 
me and one of my parents met, uh, I think, a father and a son, and they were asking us for directions how to get to Logan Airport in Boston, and they needed special directions because dad could not drive in a tunnel. He was scared of yeah. tunnels. And I was like, mm-hmm. I, that's sad, but I recognize myself in that, like, just being that crazy. But, like, yeah, if you don't handle it and get it treated, you'll be a 50 or 60-something dad who needs to find an alternate route to the airport because you can't drive it in tunnel. That sucks. That's me, except for the dad part. That is 100. Like, I can't go to the airport unless I, I can take public transit, but I cannot drive to the airport. If anybody ever comes to visit me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you really good directions to the train because I will not be picking up. Do you think our said. podcast makes our listeners more or less mentally ill on average? It's probably a wash. <laughs> Some people, it just drives to complete insanity. Others are on the ledge. The they listen to us. They're like, I need to survive so I can just get vengeance on these two assholes. Yes, exactly. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly, I guess, just mentally ill podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today... We're going to talk about something pretty big, although not as big as it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Man, there's going to be a lot of low-hanging jokes because today's episode is about circumcision. Dicks. Dicks. Did uh, you, you had something you wanted to get to before that, though? Oh, yeah. There was a story I saw the other day that I thought you would appreciate. So... Uh, Washington State, you will probably not be surprised to learn, uh, in 2020 created a statewide office of equity because, of of course, we did. And there was a bit of a scandal recently concerning the director of that agency who was recently fired. So the governor's office commissioned an investigation into the director, now former director. Her name is Jennifer McGibbon. The Seattle Times reported on this investigation. Here's a quote from that piece. Investigators said several people raised concerns about, quote, biased and insensitive conduct, end quote, including stereotyping and bias based on gender, dot, dot, dot. Two people, quote, were told to wear makeup, especially lipstick, according to the report, a claim Johnson denied. Johnson also made comments about people's hair, commented on someone's weight, and suggested that that person, quote, needed to take care of herself, according to the report, and regularly spoke as, <laughs> and regularly spoke of one person as a, quote, military hire, according to the report. One person described Johnson as having made a statement biased against Mexican people. That is our <laughs> director of the Office of Equity. Everyone, pat yourself on the back. That's awesome. Good work all around. That's it. Just wanted to tell you about that. <laughs> Anything else before we get to the dicks, Katie? Okay, there is one other thing I wanted to bring up. So do you remember our last episode? No. Okay. Well, the last half of it was about Lululemon and this shoplift. It's, I don't think you can really call it shoplifting when it's like four people with, with masks stealing $7,000 yeah. worth of goods. Anyway, so we talked about about this, this incident in Atlanta and about these two employees of this Lululemon who were fired. And you brought up something. You basically said, and I quote, why the fuck would these bitches care? They're not making any money off of this. I said sluts, not not bitches. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for the misquote. Something along the lines of this, like why would employees care that their store is being robbed? If they're not, it doesn't like come out of their paycheck. You're slightly. This was in the context. You are. This is in the context of a store where their management had told them you're not allowed to intervene in robbery. Yeah. So like they already had a clear policy. But okay, yes, my argument was basically like, unless it's somehow coming out of their paycheck, why would you care? So I got a lot of messages about that, and uh, including from people who work in retail and other like businesses other with storefronts, and also from small business owners. And here's a quote from one of the messages. This is from a, a guy in Seattle. He owns a pot shop. Uh, on why does staff why do staff care? Not everyone cynically hates their real t- retail job. Folks do take pride in their work and the place and the vibe they create. 
It's frustrating to see some people disrespect that. Perhaps more important, people don't like to see a cheater get away with it in any context. And I think that's right. And if you or I, you and I were people who actually took pride in our work, we probably would have understood that immediately. But yes, there are other reasons that people might might not want to be ripped off because people but there, just don't like being ripped off. I get what he's saying. It's one thing if like you are a part owner in the business or invested in it, but my sense is a lot of retail jobs in the States are pretty shitty. I mean, yes, a lot of retail jobs are shitty, but just because the job is shitty doesn't mean that people want to get ripped off. You still, you it, it probably still feels... But you pr- keep saying they want it, they don't want to get ripped Right, but they're not getting... I Do you think... No, they- but it's st- I'm saying that it probably feels personal. When somebody uh-huh. walks into the store that you work at, especially a store where you're an assistant manager, like this woman, uh, yeah. Lula, one of the women at Lululemon was, I'm sure it probably feels personal, especially when these are people who have targeted that store a bunch of times. Yeah. People don't like cheaters. People don't like theft. And not only that, I got an, another message from somebody who said shoplifting drives people away from locations, which is also probably true. Okay. I, I, I think these are fair points. I was just saying, I don't think, look, I mean, I mean, my, my experience is in pizza delivery. If my, if my pizza place was like, if you get, I'm trying to think of the analogy here. If you get robbed, don't chase them. Don't try to fight back. I guess I would just be like, that's the po- I'd be mad I got robbed, but I don't know. I guess it just depends on like how much ownership retail workers feel, like how much of a connection they feel to their store and pride. And yeah, you would have a visceral reaction. And like it, it does something. When I watch a video where shoplifters can just come in and take stuff with impunity, that's ridiculous. You take notes. Yeah, I take notes. Like, ooh, I can get away with that. <laughs> no, I think it's ridiculous. And it's like, yeah. Anyway, I, I think these are fair points. I'm a bad person. I apologize. Well, we can agree on that part. All right. Should we move on to penises? You know, I was just thinking today, I was thinking like taking a walk and I was thinking, what is my least favorite word? And the word that immediately popped into my brain was penis. So I'm glad we're going to be repeating it over and over again today. I bet I can come up with a word you like less. Like what? Between these two, word one, penis. Word two, moist. Penis is worse. Really? Yeah. Well, penis. folks should email us email us uh, suggestions for words that could creep Katie out or gross her out more than uh, penis. I think moist is way worse, but I'm a penis haver. I know everybody hates moist. Well, I'm a penis. partial pe- <laughs> a partial penis. I'm not in possession of a full penis. Really? You got a half one, a half seat? This episode is going to be a little bit of a mess because this is a big messy subject. I'm going to do my best. It's a tiny messy subject. It's a not as uh, blah blah blah. Okay, so we're talking about circumcision. We're talking about both the debate itself and some of the online bullshit that has uh, consumed the debate, or at least certain corners of it. It's hard to know where to even begin with circumcision because it's been around for so long. Today, it's mostly affiliated with my people, the Jews. It's in our holy book. And my people, the Muslims. And your people, the Muslims. Uh, But it's in our holy book, straight from the big man upstairs. God himself said, quote, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy descendants after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So Abraham was told that all males should be circumcised on their eighth day of life. Katie, it just makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it's in the book. If it's the only people who can write books are godly people, correct? Of course. If it's in a book. Of course. Uh no. Like a lot of stuff in ancient holy books, this apparently came from some pre existing tribal practice. Um, there's, I haven't looked deeply into this. Some anthropologist types think that this was actually like an evolution from all out infant sacrifice. Whoa. So instead of sacrificing the infant, you sacrifice a little bit of their dick. It goes without saying that it's not, it's not my belief that a deity literally said do this. So, uh, but 
growing up Jewish, I was of course circumcised after birth. I don't remember. I don't remember it. It was just eight days old. Uh, as far as I know, all my Jewish friends are circumcised. I bet you cried. I was probably a whiny little bitch about it. Man, man, don't <laughs> cut off part of my penis. Man. Uh, to the extent circumcision was talked about among fellow circumcised Jews, and, and as we'll get to a lot of non-Jews in the States are circumcised, you don't really like think about it. Like the whole just the tip joke is this idea that it's like this small, insignificant part of the penis. I honestly don't remember anyone in my own circles at any point, like really questioning the practice or treating it as a big deal. And I think later on in life, anti-circumcision folks were seen as like inherently wacky. Like why Mm -hmm. would you care about that? Is that the same connotation you have? I will admit that I have a, less experience with uh, having a dick or being Jewish than you do. Um, I Yeah, I, there are, like, there's a group of anti-circumcision activists who, I don't know if they still do, but they used to hang out at, down by uh, Pike Place. At Lululemon, just stealing stuff? <laughs> they used to, <laughs> and it did seem a little bit wacky. Like, yes, why is this intactivist? Why is this the thing? Of all of the things that, you're, that there are to protest, why is this the thing? That said, I do think that it's weird. Yeah. And I also think there's something kind of weird about, like, I've had conversations with fathers or soon-to-be fathers about this. And I have heard this more than once. I've heard dads who are circumcised say, and not necessarily Jewish guys. In fact, like I think most of the guys that I grew up with also were were probably also circumcised as well and few Jews in in that category just for cultural reasons. People did it. Uh, But I've heard more than one man say, like, I want my son to be circumcised. Like I I might acknowledge that it's weird, but I, I want my son to be circumcised because I want him to look like me, which I find sort of bizarre like why do you a why do you care if your son's dick like looks like your dick and be like that is not a conversation that any woman has ever had i need my daughter's pussy to look like my pussy i need to get my daughter brazilian as soon as possible because i need it to look like my pussy if i uh have a male child someday i it's important to me that his dick looks like me <laughs> like not my dick but like me so i'm gonna have this uh, the moa the moil as we call them carve it into the shape <laughs> of my head so that he'll know where he came you from. You know what? You look like a dick anyway, so it won't really it won't make that much of a difference. Have you been to Briss's before? No, I have not. Do Are non-Jews uh, invited to this? We're, we're pretty we're pretty welcoming people, uh, at least for yeah, the, no. the social events and the food, but uh, it's harder to become a Jew. Anyway, yeah, so I definitely attended Briss's growing up, in, including obviously my What own. is that like? Well- I don't think I really knew what they were at the time. It's just like this event. They don't exactly rush little kids to the front to watch it closely. <laughs> About five-ish years grooming. ago, I went to one where I had a closer view. It was a close family member. And I have to admit, it made me genuinely que- queasy about the whole thing for the first time. I yeah. can't remember. I probably just like made a couple jokes to people. I can't remember if I said anything beyond that, but like... I would have had to be pretty quiet if I wanted to say anything because there's just a lot of social pressure in Jewish communities because this is such a deeply entrenched tradition. It would be really weird not to do it. And this is uh-huh. including among Jews who are otherwise not very religious. And what do they do with the foreskin afterwards? Do you take it home? Is it like. Well, there's a lot of anti Semitic conspiracy theories. I wrapped it around my neck because it was chilly out. Um, <laughs> I actually don't neck. know. Make a little ring out of it. I would assume there's some religiously appropriate way to dispose of it, but I'm not sure about that. So, um, anyway. The bris burning. The bris burning. Muslims also circumcise. Uh, although Peace I, be upon I him. believe it's not in their holy book. I, it came out after um, or came 
became a thing after. Uh, but other than that, there just aren't really major religious or cultural groups, like big groups, where it's seen as a requirement. But in the 19th century, it somehow caught on, especially in the States. And at a certain point, the cultural and religious just- justifications morphed into medical ones. Uh, I should say more in the early 20th century, starting in the 19th century. So it's actually weird when you think about this just as a medical hypothesis, setting aside all the religious and cultural stuff. The hypothesis is that it's more healthy to cut healthy tissue off of the genitals of a newborn male uh, than it is not to, that this is medically necessary and useful. Usually, you don't see that sort of reasoning from the medical establishment. You don't think the medical establishment would be in favor of cutting off healthy tissue? (laughs) Have you been listening to this podcast for the past three years? Okay, what are the supposed benefits? So what's interesting is that the justifications seem to constantly shift depending on whatever like people are currently worried about medically. So for a while, people believed masturbation was this like near deadly affliction that could reduce talented and promising young men to mouth breathing morons or worse podcasters. Um, circumcision was seen as a potent anti-masturbation deterrent side note personally that has not been my experience the example that keeps coming up uh, whenever you look into this is John Harvey Kellogg who is often, oh he's crazy yeah he's credited with the invention of Kellogg's cornflakes as a means of preventing masturbation so it was actually his brother William Keith or W.K. Kellogg who accidentally invented cornflakes Apparently, John Kellogg did think cornflakes had anti-masturbation properties, but um, unfortunately, they weren't invented for that reason. Also, he was a huge— Wait, is it like like using the the cornflakes on your dick? Is that what's supposed to drive you away from masturbation? Like no, I guess you just eat them and they're so bland, you're no longer interested in sex. I guess that's the theory. Yeah, Kellogg, I don't remember any of the details, but Kellogg is a very interesting figure who had all sorts of quacky— health beliefs. T.C. Boyle wrote a novel about him that was set at this like sanatorium that he ran. Yeah, Um, I I think parts of it were fictionalized. But yeah, very interesting, very, very wacky figure. Big, big eugenicist, big fan of purity of all types from uh, anti-masturbation to uh, racial purity. So yeah, so circumcision can prevent masturbation was a belief of many like Victorian era experts. Over the years, all sorts of other medical properties have been attributed to it. Uh, there's a good 1994 article published in the Journal of Social History that we'll link to titled From Ritual to Science, the Medical Transformation of Circumcision in America. This article has just crazy shit in it, but it takes off some of the supposed benefits, which have ranged from treating orthopedic problems to treating epilepsy or hernia or even lunacy. There were these doctors that literally had these like the equivalent of case reports where they had a totally crazy kid. They snipped off the foreskin. Then they're like, he's doing fine now. Real cure-all. Real cure-all. So starting in the early 20th century, circumcisions were performed routinely on American newborns, and it came to be accepted by serious people in medicine that there were significant uh, enough benefits for it to be like a common practice, one of the most commonly performed surgical procedures. But no one ever did any actual careful research on this. The whole thing was very like unscientific, anecdata-driven. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which sets the tone for a lot of this stuff in the States, flip-flopped over the years on whether it recommended circumcision, and they released this guidance in 2012. It's now considered to be expired, but it just really highlighted how thin the case for circumcision was. So this is a whole other wormhole, but it's considered a fairly infamous document uh, to the group known as Intactivists. These are folks who believe in not circumcising. There's other names for them, but I I really like the name Intactivists. I'm going to use it. 
In brief, the AAP said that, quote, Although health benefits are not great enough to recommend routine circumcision for all male newborns, the benefits of circumcision are sufficient to justify access to this procedure for families choosing it and to warrant third-party payment for circumcision of male newborns. It is important that clinicians routinely inform parents of the health benefits and risks of male newborn circumcision in an unbiased and accurate manner. So the basic takeaway was like the benefits outweighed the risk. But the problem is like if you look into this deeply, the evidence the AAP cited didn't really come close to justifying that stance. Um, this is a place where we could get really deep in the weeds. I'll, I'll keep this short, but there was one. There were these randomized control trials conducted in sub-Saharan Africa that appeared to show circumcised men were less likely to contract HIV than uncircumcised ones. But there were all sorts of methodological problems with them, including in one of them, the people who got circumcised or got circumcised first also got uh, condom education. Mm. So you can't, if one group gets condom education, the other doesn't, you can't really compare them. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'll put a link in the show notes to like this critique, just showing all the problems with these studies. At the end of the day, some of them showed like a pretty small decrease in risk of HIV transmission. I, I the numbers were like uh, in the area of like 2.5% chance over this annually or over the study period, uh, without circumcision, 1.5% with People would often do that thing where they're like, oh, there's a 60% less chance, but that's a little misleading because the baseline risk was pretty low. The risk with circumcision was a little little lower. Basically, people I think have really – my read is they've exaggerated the benefits in these like high-risk settings in sub-Saharan Africa. They've exaggerated the benefits of circumcision. Yeah, I I remember writing in like maybe 2019 about a study – I wrote about this in The Stranger – about a a study on on circumcision. And there were these real proponents of this, including a guy who who wrote a book about this. His his name is Brian Morris. The book was called In Favor of of Circumcision. And the argument that these like pro-circumcisers made – was that and this guy Morris, he published hundreds of papers on the benefits of of, circu- of circumcision. And the argument that he and others like him were making was basically that this would, yeah, that this would decrease rates of, of STI transmission. But I interviewed a bunch of other people who were clinicians and doctors who were opposed to circumcision, and they pointed out like in most of the developed world, people have access to hygiene. So the issue is really cleanliness and being able to like wash your wash your dick properly. And there are of course places where people don't have access to modern hygiene systems, but the number of those places are shrinking every day. Yeah, one of Morris's main I think adversaries is a philosopher named Brian Earp, E A R P. I I really like Earp's work and he was this is the most in-depth stuff I've read on this is from Earp's perspective. Earp thinks that Morris is like basically full of shit. Uh, and Morris is an incredibly yeah. prolific publisher of yeah. these supposedly pro-circumcision uh, circumcision studies on the HIV stuff. And Morris is not actually a physician. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. I forgot that. But um, yeah, the it's, it's an area, I think, with a lot of shoddy research. And we should say circumcision has really caught on as an anti-HIV measure in Africa. Sometimes you see these stats like applied to a U.S. context, which you really can't do. It's not just hygiene. It's also things like the fact that there's a low base rate of HIV transmission, much lower in the States anyway, and we have condoms and we have condom use. So like we have different norms, we're wealthier, you just can't necessarily take the the African studies and apply them to the US. So that's one problem. Um, I, I, Morris also, he I think one of his arguments was that circumcision would help prevent penis and zipper syndrome. 
Have you experienced that before? <laughs> is that, does he really say that? <laughs> you mean um, uh, something about Mariatus? <laughs> so some of the other arguments for circumcision um, include that they might protect against UTIs or penile cancer. I don't find them that compelling. UTIs can often be treated fairly simply with antibiotics. Some people get like women especially can get a lot of them and they get nasty. But like the idea of cutting off a significant part of genitals to prevent UTIs, I don't know, man. Also, sometimes the estimates suggest that you need to perform many circumcisions to really see any benefit. So I found like one article suggested that according to the available data, the number needed to treat NNT with circumcision to prevent one UTI one UTI was 37. Wow. <laughs> so you need to perform 37 circumcisions to prevent one t- UTI. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how like with youth gender medicine, sometimes people accept evidence or arguments they wouldn't accept in other contexts. I just feel like if you were coming at this issue fresh and circumcision wasn't already sort of the incumbent practice, and someone was like, yeah, if we do 37 of these, we will prevent one minor infection that can be readily treated with antibiotics. I don't think anyone really accept that as evidence, right? I mean, it's only 37 dicks to sacrifice. Only 37. One woman, one woman not getting herpes for 37 foreskins. I think it's fair. So I'm not going to pretend there aren't. There are, of course, still doctors who claim that circumcision brings health benefits. Uh, and there are obviously many who perform it. Uh, I'm also not going to pretend to be an expert. I haven't looked into this the way I have youth gender medicine, but I'm just, I'm extremely skeptical, partly because I did read Earp's work earlier, but I'm also just like sort of skeptical because of how human nature works. Explain that. So I feel like humans, we have a way of justifying whatever we're doing or whatever we believe in. It's like the tail wags the dog, right? So yeah. Circumcision undeniably became the norm in the States at a time when we had no real evidence to suggest it brought benefits. It was just a holdover of these ancient tribal practices. And then like quack doctors were like, oh, it cures everything. The Mm -hmm. medical establishment became like highly invested in it. And on top of that, more than a billion people around the world belong to faiths that view it as like a holy right. So I think in a situation like this, you should probably be skeptical when someone's like, oh, it turns out this thing we were always doing for thousands of years is super helpful and has medical benefits, especially when it seems like those medical benefits have changed every decade or so, like what the purported medical benefits are. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But how common is this in the U.S. right now? It's not in the U.K., right? Don't they have hoods on their on their wieners? No, Europe. Hurts. <laughs> Little hats. So uh, Little stretchy hats. We other than Israel, we are based, my understanding is like we're sort of the sole outlier in the developed world where it's still quite common. Uh, more than half of newborn males still get circumcised, although estimates vary and there's evidence of a decline of maybe seven percentage points from 1979 to 2010, which uh, doesn't sound big, but that's you know many millions fewer circumcisions. So I believe it's going down. It's still pretty common. Okay. So I will admit that my lived experience with penises is uh, slim, but I have, of course, seen like pictures and stuff. So I know what a circumcised penis looks like, at least in theory. I'm not quite sure that I know what an uncircumcised penis looks like. I am picturing, I've been eating a lot of um, artichoke hearts. I'm picturing that. Is that sort of what it looks like? Yeah. Artichokes actually evolved from the human penis. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, No, I like, I, I, dude, it's, it's very weird because like I, have very little, I 
can only well i've been looking at a lot of pictures of dicks last few days to prepare this segment and recreationally yeah so now i sort of have a better sense of what uncircumcised penises look like but it's like completely abnormal to to see them um you should go to a bathhouse and report back just in general i should go to more bathhouses my i've been mm-hmm. saying that um or get on grinder <laughs> So the arguments against circumcision, I think we already went over, like, there's a basic philosophical one of, like, why are you doing this thing? Why are you cutting off healthy tissue? Um, and doing it without consent. Well, yeah. The, so traditionally, by the standards of modern medicine, or maybe even not so modern medicine, because it go back, goes back to Hippocrates and, and first do no harm, you think the onus of like the onus shouldn't be on the opponent of a medical procedure to provide evidence. The onus should be on the advocate for it. If you're not sure, don't do anything. And that, that should especially be the case here where like, like you're saying consent is impossible because a newborn can't consent. So it just seems that seems a little bit backwards as for the more specific, like arguments against circumcision. Some of them have to do with potential complications. I think they're fairly low in hospital settings, but even here, how low is low enough if we're not sure the procedure really brings any noteworthy benefits and if you don't have consent? There's also, I, I hesitate to mention this because it's so gross, there's ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities that engage in the grotesque practice of like a rabbi. Katie, do you want to cover your ears for a minute? Yeah, I'm doing it right now. A rabbi sucking the blood out of the wound with their mouth. What? No. no. I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. No, you're making that up. It, it's not common. I don't want to portray it as common, but it has led to like herpes outbreaks. That explains so much about you. I will include a link to a thankfully clinically worded NYC.gov page on this because this has been an issue in some oh communities in this disgusting fucking city I, for some reason, choose to live in. Uh, <sighs> Jesus. Circumcision in a hospital setting is is much more safe than that. I mean, there are, though, there are some, there's one in particular, one famous case of a botched circumcision that led to an extremely interesting uh, case study, the case of David Reimer. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, this is the uh, the John Money boy yeah. who was raised as a girl because they thought it would just be easier when they like burned off his penis, basically. Yeah, he was, and he was an identical twin. Um, uh, Rolling Stone did an article about this. This must have been like probably 30 years ago, but it was like burned into my memory. Um, yeah, this kid, David Reimer, he was his there was a bot circumcision. He had this guy, John Money, who is often credited with with inventing the concept of gender identity. I There's a, a recent paper by Alex Byrne that calls that into question. We can put a link to that in the show notes. Anyway, so he was sort of, sort of one of the early gender doctors. And um John Money convinced David Reimer's parents to raise him as a girl, and he ended up having lots and lots of of, of problems. Um, it's a it's a it's a really horrific yeah. story. Um, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. And one Money for initially took credit for like yes. being a great thing because of this like sort of constructivist worldview that if you raise a kid a girl, they'll think they're a girl. Uh, it really yeah. fucked this kid up. It's a very sad story. Yeah. The doctors did that to me too, not because of like a circumcision issue. They were just like, he can't he, throw. This kid seems like a girl. You should raise yeah. him as a girl. He can't throw. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a right fielder if I've ever seen <laughs> one. <laughs> um, so the, the, the other arguments are just like, you're apparently cutting off some very sensitive tissue. It could affect sexual pleasure, lubrication, stuff like that. I've heard some of the intactivists argue that heterosexual sex would require less artificial lube than it sometimes does. If men, if more men had their foreskins, I haven't looked closely into that, but the broader point is just like the penis evolved in a specific way. 
And why mess with that? Why remove sexual function or sensation unless there's a really good reason to do so? That's a good rundown of the history and medical controversy of all this. But when do we get to the internet bullshit, Jesse? That's what I'm here for. Right. The internet bullshit. The So the U.S. is the epicenter of a lot of anti-male circumcision activism for understandable reasons. Um, you know, there, there's evidence of declining rates, but there's still a ton of work to do if you're an intactivist activist. Um, and as you can imagine, this is a subject that generates very strong opinions. That might be why there's been a ton of infighting among some intactivists, as well as uh, fairly frequent accusations of anti-Semitism and alt-rightism and, and so on. It's hard to know where to really begin with this because there's so much. Um, it's just a, a very weird active space. I'm not intending this to be like a comprehensive investigation of the entire intactivist movement and all its major players. I'm going to focus on a few of them highlighted by our diligent researcher and all-around good boy, Tracing Woodgrains. Katie, you're a fan of anti-Semitism, so why don't we just start with like actual anti-Semitism? Great. I love it. So in 2011, there was an attempt on the part of some intactivists to get a bill on the ballot in San Francisco that would have outright banned circumcision in that city. A court ruling knocked it off the ballot, so it wasn't even voted on. But during that period, a comic called Foreskin Man by an intactivist named Matthew Hess caused a bit of a stir. Katie, why don't you read the snippet here from Mother Jones in 2011? Hess wrote the San Francisco circumcision ban, and he's an outspoken member of the intactivist movement, a cleverly named group of activists seeking to end all medical and religious circumcisions of infants. After realizing he, quote, was never going to get through, dot, 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 to a certain number of people, end quote, using reason, Hess said he created four skin men in 2010 to, quote, get people talking about circumcision, end quote. In that regard, he's been successful. People have certainly been talking about Foreskin Man and his cause. At first, the media and public weren't sure if Hess was serious about a comic meant to gather support for his ballot initiative. Some find humor in Hess's blonde, blue-eyed, muscular superhero who defends the foreskins of young boys with the helps of sidekicks like Volva Girl. That's transphobic. Others have been deeply offended by the comic's equation of male circumcision to female genital mutilation and its vilification of those who perform circumcisions, including doctors, Jews, and African tribes. That sort of embraces my people, Jesse. <laughs> Muslim circumcised too. So uh, if you scroll down, you'll see some imagery of monster Moyle. Moyle, uh, Moyle is like the, the religious figure who performs the circumcision. It's like this guy, the imagery does look anti-Semitic. Uh, it looks like you, but evil. <laughs> you with an evil hat. And much darker hair and a much longer beard. Um, so... While it was the court ruling that kept the measure off the San Francisco ballot, Foreskin Man definitely took some wind out of these sales of intactivist activists uh, because, it, you know, suddenly people aren't talking about the substantive case for or against circumcision. They're talking about this pretty anti-Semitic seeming cartoon. Hess did not acquit himself well in an interview with Eli uh, Ungar Sargon, a major and more mainstream intactivist figure to whom we will return later. Uh, Eli or Ungar Sargon interviewed him on the website Jew School. It's a pretty amazing interview for a lot of reasons. Katie, I'll read Ungar Sargon's parts and you read Hess's replies, okay? Okay. 
Were you familiar with the history of anti-Semitic imagery associated with Moyles when you created Monster Moyle? Did this inform your artistic decision-making? I first saw some of these cartoons in middle school during lessons about World War II and have seen other examples since then, but they didn't influence me one way or the other when creating the art for Foreskin Man Number 2. While I did not wish to borrow anything from those cartoons, I also felt I would not be doing justice if I held back on portraying Monster Moyle and his goons as evil characters simply, be- <laughs> simply because they are Jewish. Is it simply coincidence that the hero has blonde hair and blue eyes while the villains have darker complexions? Foreskin man's blonde hair, blue eyes, and fair skin reflects my own German heritage. I see absolutely no reason to be ashamed of that. Suggestions in the media that Foreskin Man is a Nazi because of the color of his hair are pure racial stereotyping. And Monster Moyle, Yarek, and Jorah were drawn based on the photographs of actual Moyles. So, Jesse, who... We know who Monster Moyle is. Who are Yarek and Jorah? I guess those are like his his henchmen. I cannot confess to have uh, closely read much of uh, Foreskin Man, but I love that defense against the charge of anti-Semitism. He's like, the good guys look like blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans because I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed German. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Matthew Hess and Foreskin Man. Uh, This is like positively tame compared to what's going to come next. Another very colorful figure in this world is a guy named Eric Klopper. So Klopper has a background in the hard sciences, but as he tells it, he got obsessed with circumcision and very angry about the fact that he himself was circumcised. Uh, You know, he's raised in a Jewish family. In 2018, he was working in an administrative role at Harvard, and he did this rather gonzo performance at a theater there called Sex and Circumcision, an American Love Story. Is there a recording of this, Jesse? There certainly is on YouTube. And you watched it, I take it? Hell yes, Katie. Hell yes. (laughs) How was it? I should get paid time and a half, Katie. It, so the show was more than two <laughs> hours long. Um, it's definitely interesting. You watched the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Katie, it's called doing your job. Maybe look it up. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> this is because I said that you were low effort last week, isn't it? Uh, m- more than two hours long. This guy on stage at a Harvard theater. My sense is like it does communicate accurately many of the reasons to be skeptical of circumcision, but... It's partly where his clopper just isn't a naturally charismatic guy or natural performer. So there are some very cringe moments. He talks a lot about how smart he is and about how big a dick he has, like I do on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Too many dick jokes, even for a circumcision show. His show also vacillates between like fairly calm, measured analysis, like sort of in the mode of like a, a hip college professor, which is what he's trying to be. But then toward the end, like insanely angry performance art, and it was the latter that got him in trouble. Um, so he just acts like a maniac for part of it. Like like when he's discussing his ideological foes within the American Academy of Pediatrics, like the people responsible for that, those, uh, those 2012 guidelines. Um, at this point in the performance, he has their names and photos projected behind him under the headline, Masterminds Behind the AAP's Circumcision Recommendation. Here's what he says. Here we have a group of physicians who have actively deceived us who are recommending an amputation on a child's sex organ that is both heinously violent and sexually damaging for life. How dare they? Do you understand the magnitude of this crime? How fucking dare they? Now this group, this group should fear me. And they will fear me. Because, because, I am younger than them, I am smarter than them, I am louder than them, and I'm right. And I'm better looking. And that's just a bonus. 
Did they think they were going to get away with this crime? Lying to the entire United States and causing immeasurable sexual harm on children and the men they'll become? No. No, no. Not on my watch. Shame on you, Andrew. Shame on you, Douglas. And shame on the rest of you for your complicity in this disgusting lie. Now, that is right. I just made them all publicly my bitches. He is very angry. Uh, does getting his foreskin cut off, does that mean he's never gotten laid in his life? I have not heard a man this angry about penises since the last time I checked in on the insult forum. Don't worry. He talks a lot about how his amazing uh, love of his life and uh, mentions their sex life and stuff. Um, so right after that, the image zooms in, on, the image behind him, projected behind him, zooms in on Andrew Friedman, a Jewish member of the AAP who had said he performed a bris on his own kid and that he's motivated by his um, his own Judaism to, to perform the ritual. And then he, uh, he directly addresses Andrew Friedman in this manner. Except for you, Andy. You're not my bitch. You're my little piggy. Will you show them how you squeal for me, Andy? Oh, that's a good little piggy, Andy. Okay. Okay, that's enough, Andy. Oh, that's a good little piglet, Andy. I'm scared of this man. <laughs> Did you get did you do you get that reference? Is that what the goys taunted at you uh, in the schoolyard? No, uh, unfortunately, he's apparently referencing a rather brutal hillbilly rape scene from Deliverance. Oh god, I haven't seen Deliverance. Oh shit, you should watch Deliverance. Yeah, you didn't even remember the best part. I did not remember the best part. No. <laughs> Things only escalate from here. Uh, Katie, scroll to one fifty six hour fifty six minutes in the video because again, it's more than two hours long. Tell me how Clopper looks different when you get to that point. Well, he's uh, taking his shirt off now. <laughs> That's right. He pulls his shirt off. Uh, the dude, to his credit. He's showing off his ass. The dude does work out. He says he played rugby in college. Let's listen to this next bit. Do you know what happened when I finally built up the courage to confront my Jewish father about carving his psychotic and demonstrably evil ideology into my body? Raping me of one of the most fundamental acts of connection with another human being for life. Do you know what he said? My Jewish father looked me dead in the eye, dead in the face, straight in the eye, and what he said, I will never forget. And he said, You're wrong. I'm wrong? I'm wrong! I may be many things, but I'm so far from fucking wrong! And I will tear our covenant to pieces to prove it! Do you feel my rage? Do you? Well, let me validate yours! Because it is fucking real, it is fucking justified, and you can draw a straight line back to the fucking rabbis to prove it! Well now, <laughs> now it is time for me to issue a commandment of my own. And that is this. We cannot and we will not tolerate Judaism in its current form. We are done tolerating cults that ritually mutilate their children's genitals. And I'm burning my fucking boats on this and you should join me. 
Okay, this guy has more daddy issues than a top performer on OnlyFans. <laughs> so, yeah, I you, you might have noticed like the shift though, where like this is where he starts talking about uh he seems to be talking at this point more about Judaism per se than about just circumcision, right? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, again, Klopper's himself Jewish, as he mentions, but by the end of the show, he has devolved into full-blown anti-Semitic ranting. Now I fear, I fear that Judaism has too strong a grip on this country to do that. Now, despite my ostensible First Amendment rights, I fear I might be made a political prisoner or worse, for pointing out their demonstrably evil influence on this country. Well, I've got a message for the more enlightened countries who are trying to ban this obvious act of evil. Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, Greenland, Germany. Fucking do it! Fucking do it, and you will earn your place in history for doing so, and others will follow. Do not be intimidated by these extremist groups. You have kids in your country who are depending on your strength of character to protect them from their own fucking parents. Because no one protected me from mine. And while you're all paying attention, let me convey the sheer magnitude of the crime against humanity that we have euphemistically termed circumcision in this genital cutting culture. When I was an infant, I was stripped naked and strapped to a board, and without anesthesia, my Jewish obstetrician tore the most obnoxious parts of my penis off of my body. Uh, Jesse, I'm an avowed anti-Semite, mostly because you are Semitic. This makes even me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like, it's just pretty gonzo, in part because it's portraying Jews who are a tiny minority as like the reason for America's circumcision practices when for like more than a century, the Gentile medical establishment have been big fans of the... I'm almost like overthinking it. Wait, 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 wait. Are you pretending that all doctors aren't Jewish? No, I'm saying when circumcision caught on, it was absolutely like they were... (laughs) You're being... No, you're being... You're this... You're Clopper. Um, Okay. (laughs) Finally, he's sitting down on the stage toward the end of the show, still shirtless, because of course he is, and he says this. And while I'm down here, let me tell you a secret. This is how these religious ideologies work. Just as hazing binds fraternities, genital mutilation binds religious groups. The Jews, I know, I'm one of them, are an unmasked genital mutilation cult. That is why we are so clannish. It is our shared delusion of superiority that we must uphold to maintain our perverted tribal identity. Circumcision is the evil that binds us together. So yeah, this is just like, this is outright anti-Semitism. It's not even dog whistling. This idea of Jews as like a secretive clan who view themselves as superior. It's, 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 it's anti-Semitic. It's not, I don't know. I don't, I don't like false accusations of anti-Semitism or racism. This is not. This is the genuine article. Do you think the fact that he's actually Jewish makes any difference here? I mean, 
marginally at a, but at a certain point it's just i don't know i don't think you can say he's jewish so it's not anti-semitic that the words are the words right yeah so i'm guessing this show this kicked up some controversy at harvard i would assume it sure did it led to a rash of uh, harvard crimson coverage uh including the memorable headline harvard quote-unquote reviewing employees nude anti-semitic rant in sanders theater uh the crimson also reported on how he worked on the show during work hours and how his performance may have violated a licensing agreement with the city of Cambridge over nudity, given that, quote, at one point, the video show Clopper, with all his clothes removed, repeatedly mimicking various sexual acts with an inflatable sex doll while Britney Spears' Toxic played in the background, end quote. That part, unfortunately, he did not include in the YouTube video, so I did not see it firsthand. Look, we have a first member right for a reason, Jesse. That is fine. <laughs> Klopper eventually sued both Harvard and the Crimson for a a buffet of alleged wrongdoings, including defamation and wrongful termination. The lawsuit didn't go anywhere. Among other problems, the judge who tossed it basically said that none of the Crimson statements were actionable. Klopper just like didn't really have a claim here. Plus Harvard, you know, he's an at-will employee. He can be fired for basically any reason. I personally don't think the free speech stuff applies here because he wasn't a faculty member. He was a system administrator in like the language department in a language department or something. So that's Eric Klopper, uh, another person whose brain was somewhat melted by the circumcision debate. He's apparently now in private practice in California. Along the way, as he, private practice doing what? He's now a attorney, like sewing, sewing, uh, sewing foreskins back on. Funny you should ask, because along the way, as he mentioned in his show, he's founded a startup seeking to create technology to regrow the foreskin. <laughs> would you partake? I would, if I was sure I could get my foreskin back and that it would like function. Yeah, why not? I would do it. You know what? I might get one just to try it out. Katie, should we do housekeeping? Or do you want to do housekeeping, I should say, because I'm talking a lot? We are a podcast, and you can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Please send all your tips there, although not your foreskins. Send those directly to Jesse. We are also on Reddit. There are thousands of interesting, thoughtful people coming together there to discuss, dissect, and complain about us. And you can find that at blockedandreported.reddit.com. Question mark? Exclamation point. That's it. You nailed it. Thank you. We also have merch. We have new merch right now. We have a blocked and reported hat for the first time. We also have an amazing shirt made by a listener of a large man in a diaper. Please get that and wear it to your work. And the best way to support this podcast is to go to blockedandreported.org and become a primo. That is a premium subscriber for just $5 a month. You get three extra episodes of this podcast every single month, as well as access to our comment section. We have a great and growing community over there. You get other goodies and primos are the reason that this show can keep going. So please join us just $5 a month. Anything else, Jesse? What was our last primo episode about? I can never remember. It was an AMA. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't. It was, um, it was, um, it was about polyamory. We decided who, if poly people are, are a lot of pride, and we also got to the origins of the term demisexual. We figured out who invented this thing. I should, we're also, we're doing a new tier level. If you give $20,000 a month or more, I will circumcise anyone you want. You get one circumcision per year. It can be a friend, an enemy. Um, I don't care if it's consensual because money's money. So that's just a new tier we're introducing. Yeah, join us, blockchainreported.org. Okay, back to the story, Katie. How about a palate cleanser, a normal intactivist? I would love a palate cleanser, Jesse. Maybe like not something that looks like an artichoke, though. <laughs> um, all right, well, meet Eliahu Ungar Sargon, who, yes, is Batya's brother. 
Batya being the news editor, friend of the pod. Ungar Sargon is a filmmaker and photographer and journalist. And in 2007, he came out with an influential film called Cut, Slicing Through the Myths of Circumcision. I like that. Catchy. This film was a pretty big deal in that world. And Ungar Sargon's project centers on the goal of convincing other Jews that circumcision is a bad idea and that you shouldn't need to be circumcised to be considered a Jew in good standing or jigs. Do you now? Do Is that like, can you go to Jew heaven? Wait, Jews don't have heaven. Do you need to be circumcised to be a Jew? in good standing i think it's more i might not have phrased that as carefully as i should have it's more he's trying he like yeah he's trying to create welcoming spaces i don't think you'd be ostracized if you showed up as a non-circumcised you i actually don't know no i don't his if you go to do you have to do a penis check when you walk into the temple that's how we greet one another we just pull our pants down (laughs) shalom (laughs) or if it's friday shabbat shalom uh, his, I don't, I'm not as familiar with these more religious communities. His, his, his project is premised on the idea of creating welcoming spaces for non-circumcised Jews. Um, okay. So like he founded a nonprofit called Bruchim that seeks to reduce the stigma of non-circumcision in Jewish communities. Um, you know, he's a pretty mainstream guy. He's written for places like the Journal of Medical Ethics. He published a 2013 response article called On the Impermissibility of Infant Male Circumcision. Uh, he is a lefty who's also involved in pro-Palestinian activism, and he's noticed what he believes is a big uptick in anti-Semitism and conspiracy theorizing and alt-right fuckery in intactivist spaces. Um, and I should say, when I asked him about that label, intactivist, he said he was like a little ambivalent about it. He doesn't mind it. Um, he prefers like other nomenclature, but he he does see it as becoming a little bit more associated with bad and creepy actors. But it's too good a term not to use. So um, I can totally see like Twitter randos with like Roman statues in their bios. Yeah. Although I guess wait, the Romans did were the Romans sacri- uh, circumcised? I'm always trying to picture Julius Caesar's penis. I would guess the Romans who were pagans until they were Christians were not. I don't know how the pagans felt about uh, circumcision, but the Christians are not in favor of it. But um, Oh, the pagans were huge in tactics. <laughs> there are some of them outside of Pike Place Market right now. When So as a intactivist who's also a lefty social justice type, when something like Foreskin Man pops up, Ungar Sargon is often sort of the, the trusted or established member of the community who helps lead the response. He also responded to Eric Klopper's memorable performance at Harvard – with a post that just sort of pointed out some of the inaccuracies and conspiracy theorizing in it. I'll, I'll link to that. Um, that post is called On Eric Klopper and Misdirected Anger. I liked it because it took a measured, humane view of Klopper's deeply insane performance. He didn't treat Klopper like a monster. He treated Klopper as like an angry young man whose anger had been misdirected in like a conspiratorial anti-Semitic direction. Daddy issues. AKA daddy issues. So, in reading his stuff, I often get the sense that Ungar Sargon is like this calm center of a movement that is always at least a little bit at risk of running off the rails just because it it's just one of those issues that attracts certain types. Uh, Ungar Sargon thinks that, that the formation of the alt-right in the early teens was pretty bad news for intactivists, and he thinks that a lot of anti-Semites and other unsavory folks have globbed on to intactivism for the wrong reasons. And Katie, I'm guessing you can imagine like what those reasons are. I can guess so, yes. I can understand why this would attract unsavory people, because it involves Jews, it involves children, and it involves sexuality, and it's just like sort of an unholy mix of issues. And there is the fact, setting aside the fact that Jews are not the reason we have a lot of circumcision in the States. Right. Jews are one of the groups that want to defend circumcision, or a lot of us are. Um, so it's just, it's it's the kind of thing that's going to attract some, frankly, bad people. Um, so 
Ungar Sargon last year wrote a piece called How to De-Radicalize a Movement, in which he talked a bit about his recent history in these spaces uh, and his own impressions of how things had gotten worse, especially since the rise of the alt-right. He also mentions forming a working group with other intactivists and releasing an open letter titled Statement Opposing Anti-Semitism Within the Genital Autonomy Movement. That was posted on the website of the organization uh, Beyond the Briss. So one of Ungar Sargon's main adversaries at this point, uh, someone he views as part of that problem of rising anti-Semitism and bigotry within the intactivist community, is actually a former friend of his, Ooh. a guy named Brendan Murata. Murata made a 2017 documentary called American Circumcision that you can watch on YouTube. It is much, much saner than Eric Klopper's stage performance, although it covers some of the same ground. Uh, I definitely have some critiques of it overall, but I'd, I'd recommend it. We'll include a link. At the end of the documentary, Ungar Sargon is one of the people Murata thanks, so they, they definitely were friends at the time. Here's what Ungar Sargon wrote in his article, How to De-Radicalize a Movement. Katie, do you want to read this? In February of this year, that's 2022, when Brendan Murata, director of the documentary filmed American Circumcision, self-published his second book, he included a chapter in it about Jews. Brendan was once a friend and I helped him with his film and con contributed to his Kickstarter campaign for it. This was before I learned that he has been radicalized in online alt-right spaces and had hidden his extremist views on race from me. Shortly after I gave up on talking him out of his racial separatist convictions, Murata appeared on Stefan Molyneux's Free Domain radio show to promote his film and wrote the following in a November 21, 2016 blog post on his website. Quote, I have been a fan of Stefan's work for a long time, so it was really great to finally talk to him. End quote. Molyneux is a known eugenicist and white nationalist who has since been banned from YouTube and Twitter for violating hate speech policies. Murata has built quite a following for himself over the years, and in his new book, he argues that the genital autonomy movement should take a page out of the anti-racist playbook and start dividing the world into pedophiles and anti-pedophiles. If this sounds bizarre, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in far-right online spaces where the appropriation of progressive ideas, e.g. woke, becoming red pill, and an obsession with pedophilia cur courtesy of QAnon are commonplace. The anti-Semitism in Murata's book is extensive. Okay, yeah, so clearly no longer friends. There's a lot here to unpack. First off, I should say that, like, I think Stefan Molyneux is a white nationalist. Um, I wouldn't assume someone is also one just for having gone on his show or praised him once, at least without details. Trace said the episode in question was just about circumcision stuff. So I wouldn't take that on its own as, oh, you're a white nationalist because you once went on Stefan Molyneux and um, praised him. But there's, there is more detail and more evidence here. So Brendan Murata has claimed that Eli Ungar Sargon is engaged in this ridiculous years-long smear campaign against him that is totally unfair and unfounded. He did a whole post about it last year called Bruchim's Founders Have Been Engaged in a Slander Campaign Against Me. In response to emailed questions from Trace, Murata doubled down on this, claiming he has evidence that Ungar Sargon is spreading the white nationalist slander despite not actually thinking he's a white nationalist, so just as a means of harming his reputation. I got on the phone with Eli Ungar Sargon. He told me something that he initially wanted to be off the record, uh, what he viewed as pretty ironclad evidence Murata is, in fact, a white nationalist. After he told me that, I was like, look, Murata is claiming publicly and claimed to trace that you are unfairly defaming him, so we do have to communicate that claim of his. And if you want to rebut it, you might want to consider going on the record. Um, I guess he found that convincing, and I asked him to just write up what he told me off the record as an email. Here's what he said. In the lead-up to the 2016 election, Brendan was crowdfunding for his film American Circumcision on Kickstarter. I was an enthusiastic supporter of this project, and I noticed that he was leaning into some anti-Hillary Clinton sentiment in his promotion of the campaign. 
Shortly following the election of Donald Trump in November of 2016, I reached out to Brendan to better understand why he would be marketing his film with an anti-Hillary spin. Is it possible that he had voted for Donald Trump? He told me that he had voted for Donald Trump, and I asked him how he could ignore all of Trump's obvious character issues. I listed off a number of problems that I had with Trump, including the fact that he had failed to condemn white nationalism when given the opportunity. In responding to this, Brendan said to me, you know, Ellie, I think there need to be more exclusive white spaces in this country. I was absolutely shocked by the statement, and I objected to it. Brendan said, quote, you people get to have your own exclusive spaces, so why can't we, end quote. I had a follow-up conversation with him to make sure I wasn't missing something. In this conversation, Brendan told me about how he was sick of being accused of anti-Semitism for opposing infant circumcision, and he had found a welcome and receptive community in online alt-right spaces, which is where he first started to appreciate the importance of race. Okay, so it sounds like... Brendan is in favor of affinity groups. <laughs> he's just he's just a really committed <laughs> anti-racist. Uh, this is like the Syrah Rao version of anti-racism. So in Ellie Ungar Sargon's telling, yes, he has been telling people behind the scenes that Brendan Murata is a white nationalist, but that's because Brendan Murata told him, you know, I think there should be exclusive white only spaces, which he views as a white Golf nationalist views. <laughs> right. Um, what did Murata say in response to this? Did he rebut this at all? So Brendan Murata told a very different story. I'll read from part of his email to me. Quote, I've written out what I recall is the last conversation I had with Eliyahu for my lawyers. What I'm going to give you comes from the document I gave them and I'm prepared to say if questioned under oath during legal proceedings. Eliyahu called me to say he was concerned about something. He seemed distraught and mentally unwell. I remember the following dialogue word for word from the beginning of our conversation. Eliyahu, we really need to abolish whiteness. Me, I find that really offensive. How would you feel if someone said, we need to abolish Jewishness? Eliyahu, well, that's different. And so on, like the rest of his email just explains, tells a very different story in which Ungar Sargon is defaming him when it was actually Ungar Sargon who was acting in an erratic and sort of radical left-wing manner. I do have to say that based on my brief time reading and talking to Ungar Sargon, I was surprised at the idea of him calling to abolish whiteness. So I ran Murata's claim by Ungar Sargon on the phone, and he replied, quote, that's not a phrase that has ever passed my lips. Okay, it sounds like you more lean towards believing Ungar Sargon than Murata. Overall, yes, but that's just my intuition, and I could be wrong. Uh, as Ungar Sargon pointed out when we first spoke, this is a total he said, he said. There's no way to know, uh, which also means that it doesn't really tell us anything that Murata is willing to go under oath, because again, there's literally no way to prove it one way or another, so it's not like he'd be in any jeopardy of perjury or anything like that. But uh, overall, what Murata told me just sounded a little bit like a trope about a crazed social justice warrior. And if I had to bet, I'd say Ungar Sargon's uh, description of what happened is more accurate. But again, impossible to know for sure. Can we go back to a moment for th to that blog post that Ellie wrote? He said something that I didn't quite understand about anti-racism, using the language of anti-racism, something, something, pedophilia. C will you read that again? Right. So this is Ungar Sargon criticizing Murata. Ungar Sargon wrote, Murata has built quite a following for himself over the years, and in his new book, he argues that the genital autonomy movement should take a page out of the anti-racist playbook and start dividing the world into pedophiles and anti-pedophiles. So um, basically, Murata is a pretty odd guy. I'll include a link to his podcast episode touting his book where he explains his evolution and all this stuff. He claims that amidst the chaos of the post-George Floyd and pandemic landscape, 
he realized that arguments against circumcision based in human rights discourse weren't going to work because the currently dominant ideology is critical theory or wokeness or whatever you want to call it. So Brendan Murata claims that he read a lot of critical theory to try to better understand it, and he came away really admiring it. So he decided to switch tracks and attack circumcision with like using critical theory as his preferred weapon. Uh So mostly, or like a lot of this seems to just involve changing words around. So instead of white fragility, he talks about Jewish fragility and he decided to start talking about systematic pedophilia, I guess, instead of systematic racism, Uh, I guess, because he thought that like talking about things, it's just a more critical theory ish way of making these arguments. This took him some weird places. I listened to the podcast episode where he introduces this whole turn I don't think he's trolling, but it's hard to be convinced he isn't trolling. Like, it's unclear how he could possibly think that talking about Jewish fragility would win him any new allies, especially among folks receptive to social justice speak. Right. He seems to be misreading the people that he wants to attract, if he indeed wants to attract, like, woke people interested in critical theory, which, like, if he's gonna, if he's pivoting to pedophilia, the crowd he's going to attract is, like, the libs of TikTok crowd – where everybody's a groomer. Although lives of TikTok is an Orthodox Jew, so she's probably okay with with a <laughs> yeah. He um, you know, uh, I haven't read this book, but Ungar Sargon, as I noted above, claimed it was anti-Semitic. Here's quotes provided by Ungar Sargon: "The reciprocal Jewish justice of eye for eye applied to this issue would mean holding down perpetrators of systematic pedophilia and cutting off part of their genitals without anesthesia." Dot dot dot. This model would create more harm in the name of punishing harm. He also says, while Jewish people might want to separate Jewish identity from systematic pedophilia rather than abolish it, it is not enough for Jewishness to not be pedophile. Not a pedophile. (laughs) Okay, okay. So he's saying like he's like cribbing from Ibram Kendi where he's saying like it is not enough to be to be not racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. He's saying it is not enough to not be a pedophile. You have to be actively anti-pedophile. And and closely linking Judaism to pedophilia. So yes. he goes he continues, not a pedophile is not an identity. Jewishness would have to be anti pedophile, meaning that Jewishness would have to be an identity that actively opposes systemic pedophilia, or the person participating in Jewish identity would have to have such a critical consciousness that their participation deconstructed the aspects of that identity that involves systemic pedophilia. This borders on impossible couple more, Jewish people should participate less in this inherently pedophile identity and become less Jewish. To become less Jewish is to become less pedophile. Oh, my God. And, and, he, and to be clear here, he is equating circumcision with pedophilia. Say what you will about circumcision. It's not done for sexual pleasure. It's Unless not, you are a rabbi sucking yeah, the, the of blood out of an infant's penis. Last one. Uh, only once freed from the social construction of Jewishness will people be free from systemic pedophilia. So. Again, this comes across as an extremely strained effort to like be cute, to be like, ha I can write like a wokester. But of course it it comes across as deeply anti-Semitic. Yeah, this is incomprehensible. Uh, well, it's either it's incomprehensible or it's anti-Semitic, one or the other. There, there's also an article- Why not both? Why not both? There's also an article on Beyond the Bris by a guy named David Balashinsky that really lays into Murata's work. Uh, that's called Undermining the Cause of Genital, Genital Autonomy Through Jewish Scapegoating and Anti-Semitic Tropes. I'll include a link to that too. Um, I'm not really sure what Murata has to complain about here. Like he chose to write a book in a very specific way that was designed to be inflammatory. 
and to at best creep right to the edge of anti-Semitism, though I think he like tumbles right down into that pit. It's it's a weird it might just be a weird instance of someone maybe thinking he's like a lot smarter than he is, or overthinking or underthinking what makes for a good argument. It's just like it's like what happens when you cross a guy obsessed with wokeness with a guy obsessed with uh circumcision. It it leads you to uh you get a very weird guy, is what I'm saying. Okay, so did listen, did looking into this stuff, did this change your own views on circumcision? Or are you going to get recircumcised now? I'm going to have a ceremony. I'd like you to perform my recircumcision. No, I'm good. <laughs> like I said, I already read a bit of like Brian Earp's work that the philosopher who's like really thinks there's a lot of bullshit in the pro circumcision medical research, and that the ethical arguments are also bullshit. Um, I I found him convincing. Preparing this segment though, like it did force me to confront this issue in a bit more of a visceral way. Um, and I just think at the end of the day, it's morally wrong to circumcise a baby. Some people. What about an adult? Uh, what about an unconscious adult as a prank? Yeah. <laughs> no, I just I like this. Is obviously, in some quarters, going to be an unpopular view. The powers that be (triple parentheses) won't like it. Uh, no, I th- I think it's morally wrong to circumcise a baby. I do. I, the consent problems are so obvious. The mixing of religious and medical justifications is so fraught. It it just seems like it's not that close a call. Like if you're an adult male and you decide this this religious right is important, I guess you should go for it. But if you can sort of like climb up out of the fog of cultural and religious history, this is such a strange ritual. And uh, if I end up having a male child, I just can't really see a situation in which I'd, I'd go through with this. I guess the exception would be like if the mom was like, herself from a pretty religious family there certainly have to be like some conversation about it maybe some tension but i don't know i'm frankly pretty grossed out by it at this point what do you think oh i'm pro just from a purely aesthetic argument that little hat creeps me out i mean the whole organ creeps me out so um, i'm probably the worst person to ask about this you're the worst person to yeah. ask yeah i mean my least favorite word is penis um yeah i i think it's strange and there are lots of things that religions do that are strange. Maybe most things that religions do are strange to me as somebody who was raised in a very, very secular household. But this to me, yeah, I cannot see a a modern day argument for this. I really can't. Unless you like live in a house with no running water and the only way to uh, clean your weenus is to is to take the hat off. Yeah. But I don't think that's most Americans. Yeah, man, I, I don't I don't get it. Um and I think it's like really important here and with other issues to not let the conversation be shut down just because it attracts some real fucking weirdos. Like mm-hmm. we've seen this before. Any issue that arouses strong emotions is going to bring some shady people out of the woodwork. And if you say like, well, Brandon Murata seems like an anti-Semite. So I guess there's no real argument against circumcision. That's just like morally and intellectually lazy, especially when there are folks like Ellie Ungar Sargon or Brian Arp around who, who don't have those shortcomings. I mean, we see the same issue in the culture wars over gender transition. Yeah, youth gender transition. Yeah, it's like the conservatives don't yeah. like it, so it must be great, which has not led us to a healthy place in terms of having a conversation over the pros and cons. So are you mad at your parents for choosing to circumcise you? That's that's why I'm doing this podcast. This has all been performance art. My shirt is off. Fuck you, Dad. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Not really. Like, it's such second nature and there's so much misinformation that I don't really blame them. I will say at the risk of, like, a little bit more TMI, uh, which is not my usual mode, this is maybe the first time I've ever wondered what it would be like to have foreskin. Like You can get a new one. Yeah, well, if Eric Klopper's thing works out. No, I'm not about to go full Eric Klopper, but, like, how could you not wonder a little bit? You're talking about experiences and feelings you'll never have because of a decision 
uh, that was in effect made millennia before you were born. I can see why this issue drives some people batshit insane, to be honest, but I just think that batshit insanity probably stymies any further progress, by which I mean doing this to fewer kids. So are you uh, ready to pick up a picket sign and join the activist movement? I think I will, uh, you know, I don't like to be a part of any movement that would have me as a member. That's why I'm in a uh, self-loathing Jew. So. All right. Well, thanks for that, Jesse. Anything else? No. Uh, if you are about to get your kids circumcised, I guess don't do it because podcast let or let me do it at that new tier. This has been Blocked Reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrain, who really took a deep dive into this, and The Mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, if you happen to come across my foreskin, my mailing address is in the show notes. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, it's sort of weird to cut off your son's foreskin, but it's normal to cut off his balls. <laughs>